You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. This is going to be a good one, folks. We're thrilled for it, and we're thrilled you're here. Want to let you know. Modern Day Debate is a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. I'm your host, James, and we want to let you know, no matter what walk of life you are from, folks, we are thrilled to have you here. Christian, atheist, agnostic, all the, all the different views, folks, we're really glad that you are with us tonight. And so, with that want to let you know a couple of things. One, in less than a week, we are thrilled, as you can see right here on this promo poster, we are thrilled Matt Dolahunty will be returning to Modern Day Debate to debate Samuel Nassan on whether or not Jesus fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament. So that is going to be an epic one. And folks, have to let you know, hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss that one live. It's going to be an epic Friday night. And so really excited for that. Also, what we're going to do for tonight's debate is it's fairly flexible, kind of easy going. So we are going to have the affirmative going first. That is Siddharth and Arjuna, a.k.a. Theology Unleashed. And then after their openings, which is about 12 minutes from each side, split by the two speakers on each side, then we will have Ask Yourself and Jack do their openings, followed by Open Conversation. After that, Q&A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire it in the old live chat and tag me with at Modern Day Debate. That way I can see every question and get it into that Q&A list. So we are going to introduce our guests. We're thrilled to have them here. And so, guys, we're pumped for this one. This is going to be a blast. So we will start with Ask Yourself. Glad to have you here. What can people expect to find at your link in the description? Ask Yourself. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, no problem. You're a great uh, hype man, James. Um, well, yeah, my uh, the my link, I guess, is down below. What do they find there? Um, yeah, I like philosophy content. A lot of it's about veganism. Uh, I touch on some other topics. You got it. Well, thanks so much. And Jack, 
I am pumped to have you. This is going to be epic. So if you could share just a little bit about yourself, thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I ju- I've done some debates on YouTube and on Discord on philosophy and economics, which I study informally. So that's about it. Awesome. Well, we're pumped for having you here tonight. And also, Siddharth, glad to have you back. What can people expect to find at your link? And thanks again for being with us. Thank you, James, one more time for being such a wonderful host. I have shared the link from my website where I have a URL to my book and a couple of academic articles which I've written on the subject of science and religion. And I look forward to this debate. You got it. Thank you very much. And Arjuna, pumped to have you here, also known as Theology Unleashed. What can people expect to find at your link in the description? So my link and my YouTube channel, I host debates on there and I also put out when I have time videos arguing various topics on philosophy of religion. Uh, One thing I like to go after is absurd versions of Christianity and whatnot. I argue for what I take to be a more philosophically coherent theology, which is more inclusive and found in the Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition, a.k.a. Hare Krishna. You got it. Well, we're thrilled to have you here as well and want to let you know, folks, All of our guests are linked in the description, and that includes if you're listening via podcast. We're pumped, you guys. We've been super encouraged that people have been downloading the Modern Day Debate podcast. Encourage you, pull out your phone, find your favorite podcast app, and find Modern Day Debate as it's been just super encouraging, like I said, that people have been giving positive ratings as well. So thanks, everybody, for your support. And if you're listening via podcast, all of our guests are linked in that description as well. And so... No matter where you're listening, you can access their links. And with that, we are very excited to jump into this debate. So thank you, gentlemen. We are going to kick it over to Siddharth and Arjuna for a, it's like a flexible 12-minute or so opening that they'll split amongst each other. And thank you guys for being here. The floor is all yours. Siddharth, you want to give your arguments? Yes. Give me a second. I'm going to share my screen. Okay. Okay. So thank you, my dear friends, um, for this wonderful opening. And, and thank you for the opportunity to have a you know, good conversation with thoughtful people like Ask Yourself, Jake, Arjuna. So I would like to begin my talk or my, my presentation with the, this amazing picture you can see on the screen. I'm not sure if many of you know the history behind this picture. Almost a century ago, uh, This picture was taken by Sir Arthur Addington and it changed the course of history. It changed the course of history, like it changed changed the course of how we perceive science. Why? Because in 1900s, early 1900s, Einstein had proposed theory of general relativity. And when he had proposed that, there were many cautions. People were not interested in accepting Newtonian idea. People were not interested in throwing the Newtonian idea of forces. But when Einstein came and said that gravity is just a distortion of space and time, people questioned him. Only you know, a couple of decades later, or we can say a decade later after he proposed his theory, it was vindicated by this picture. This picture was taken by Sir Arthur Addington in 1919 when he showed that the light is, you know, uh, gets moved due to the space and time distortion. Thus, this was a, a moving point in the history of science. And we have a similar moving point right now with us in our today's presentation. 
So today I'm presenting, does God exist? I'm myself, a computer scientist from University of Michigan. I work as a researcher, a data scientist and a researcher in Michigan. And that's my email ID if you have any questions. So here's the summary of my argument. I'm going to talk about uh, an argumentation Puranas. What are Puranas? Puranas are encyclopedic texts written thousands of years ago. And they describe history, religion, science, sociology, a bunch of different things. Now, as a Hare Krishna practitioner, we take Puranas as source of genuine knowledge. However, such faith in Puranas is questioned by modern you know, people or you know, scientific minds, or you can say you know, current generation of people, the modern generation. In my presentation, I, I'm going to show the second point, which is that the Puranas have been vindicated by recent scientific discoveries. And thus, I will establish that Puranas are genuine source of knowledge. And Puranas unequivocally state that God exists. So that would be my summary. That's my summary you know, of my argument. First of all, you know, epistemologies. So broadly, let's divide epistemologies into two types. One is ascending, other is descending. What is ascending epistemology? Um, based on you know empiricism, I'm sorry, empiricism and rationalism, or inductive methods, and what is descending? Descending is accepting knowledge coming from revealed by God and God revealed it to sages and coming down to us. So that is Puranas and Vedas. Whereas ascending knowledge is modern science. So given any kind of knowledge which we have, both epistemologies, uh, you know, encourage the the person who has got the knowledge to verify it. Now, there can be subjective methods and objective methods. So in the case of Puranas, which we're trying to establish as a genuine source of knowledge, there is subjective verification, objective verification. What is subjective verification? Puranas state that if you follow this lifestyle, which is given in the Puranas, which means having God as a center part of your life, then you'll be able to clean your heart of envy and anger, which are very difficult problems to get relieved of. And it will lead you to a sense of happiness, which you can't find materially. Some of the Puranic techniques or the Vedic techniques are yogas, yoga, Ayurveda, which I'm sure many of you have tried. However, these are more subjective methods. They can't be really measured in the lab. You know, how much anger was reduced in your case? How much envy did you get rid of? There's no, there's no, like, no, no scale for it. So, you know, given with this, you know, we have a tough task. We have to come up with some kind of objective verification. And since we're making such an extraordinary claim that a thousand-year-old text or a few thousand-year-old text has, you know, is a genuine source of knowledge, we have to come up with some extraordinary evidence to support such an extraordinary claim, as Carl Sagan said it. So I'm going to talk about three data points. My first data point is age of the universe. So according to the Puranas, the universe is 13.819 billion years old. What about modern science? Well, modern science, you know, it works inductively. So over the last 100 years, or you can say 200 years, it has made progress. Initially, it started with the opinion that the universe is eternal because they wanted to avoid God. However, the current opinion, thanks to cosmic microwave background radiation, is 13.801 billion years. So what took scientists last 100 years or 200 years is plainly stated in the Puranas. The difference between two values is only 0.1%. That's data point one. Number two, age of the sun. So uh, age of the sun is a problem that can be solved by studying the radioactive properties of the oldest rocks that, are, that have been found in the solar system. 
What is the Puranic value? 4.563. What is the scientific value? 4.567. The difference? 0.08%. Next, Earth's greatest mass extinction. The scientists state that our Earth has gone through many periods of extinctions, mass extinctions. However, the biggest mass extinction, according to the scientists, was 251.9 million years ago. That was the end Permian mass extinction. What about the Puranas? The Puranas state that the biggest mass extinction in the current, you know, in, in, in this cycle of the solar system happened 251.2 million years ago. The difference is 0.3%. Now, all these three data points uh, I have published in a peer review journal called European Journal of Science and Theology, where I established the, the analysis behind it. Because if you look on Wikipedia, you won't find such dates. Because as I said, I'm a data scientist and a researcher. So this is something which I discovered through my study and work on the ancient Sanskrit literature. Now, somebody may say, hey, maybe those sages, they guessed it. I, uh, the numbers which you can find in the Puranas and Vedas go up to 10 to the power 62. They could have chosen any number. So the probability that they got this one date correctly is roughly one over 10 to the 62. You know, the, or in that range, you know, the red, that, that kind of uh, around that number. What is the probability that they got these three dates accurately? 10 to the 186. Again, in that range, somebody may say 170, somebody may say 180 if they want to, you know, uh, you know create a, a bigger group of guesses. Then <clears throat> these are only the three data points in my book. I, in my book, and in my book, which is an expanded version of my paper, I discuss dozen such data points. So summarizing, we have two epistemologies of knowing the world around us. One is ascending epistemology, second is descending epistemology. What is the ascending epistemology? Modern science. The, what is the descending? It's Puranas and Vedas, knowledge coming from sages, from God. So ascending epistemology is inaccurate by design. It needs to be constantly updated based on the data which we observe outside. You know, sometimes we have Newtonian theory of gravity, then we have Einstein's theory of gravity, and in future there are some other candidates which we want, which want to replace even Einstein. You know, the world doesn't end. On the other side, we just show how Puranas are genuine source of knowledge. Of course, science. Modern science doesn't need to vindicate Puranas. Uh, however, here for people who have faith in modern science, we have provided evidence so that they can have faith in the Puranas or have confidence in the Puranas as genuine source of knowledge. Now, Puranas state clearly that God exists. Ascending knowledge, modern science says, hey, we don't know if God exists or not. I would like to end with a quick short story of uh, Samuel Weiss. In 1847, he was the one who should be credited for discovering the science behind washing the hands. However, for 20 years, his opinion was rejected. He was ridiculed and people laughed at him. So science is a slow process. In this slow process of denying God or going against the uh, recommendations given the Puranas for lifestyle, you know, saying in the name of science, we may lose many lives. And that's what's happening right now. We have so much pollution, so many mental health problems. Why? Because we don't have God in the picture. So I recommend that we use whatever time we have left in our lifetime and make God again part of our life. Thank you. I will let Arjuna continue the presentation. All right. Um, so I was going to talk about two other lines of evidence. Uh, given the time, I'll probably restrict it to one. Uh, so the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam give a particular ontology of the soul. They they talk of the soul, the body as like a machine. Uh, the soul enters into it and travels to another body. So this is a prediction, you could say. And then we have various kinds of evidence which confirm that, such as near-death experiences. Uh, there's various arguments from philosophy of mind, 
and we have the evidence for reincarnation, which is, has been advanced by Dr. Ian Stevenson, and the work has continued to this day. Um, so Dr. Ian Stevenson, uh, he collected over 2,600 cases of past life memories, of which 65 detailed reports have been published. Uh, he wrote several books. So one example of a case is Kum Kum. She remembered uh, a past life in a, a village called Darbanga, which was quite small. She named the, the, the location, the, the portion of the village that she lived in, and she was able to correctly recall uh, the fact that um, her grandson's name, the town where her father lived, and personal details such as having an iron safe at home, a sword hanging near the cot where she slept, and a pet snake that she fed milk to. So these details were later confirmed when the, they were able to identify a person who lived in the, the village she described that matched these details. That's just one example. There's many such cases. Uh, so he met, gave mathematical strength uh, to his findings by... Uh, processing the data. One way he did that was uh, he gave evidence for birthmarks. So he divided a uh, human body into 160 boxes, each 10 centimeters squares. So that's what it would be on an average size adult. So there's a chance of 160 of a birthmark matching a wound, which makes a chance of one in 25,000 of two birthmarks matching a wound. So he had 18 cases in which a child remembers a death by gunfire and has two birthmarks corresponding to the bullet's point of entry and exit. In one of these cases, the second birthmark was predicted by Stevenson and found under the child's hair when they looked for it after he suggested that they would find one. And these birthmarks, they match too. So just, just like bullet entry and exit wounds, they have the first one small and the, lar and the exit wound is lar larger and more, it's a different shape than the entry wound these birthmarks match that pattern. Um, and it, uh, there was also phobias and, and behaviors and mentalities that carried over. So uh, in, a, in a test batch of 387 children who claimed to remember previous life, 141 of them had phobias that nearly always corresponded to the exact mode of death documented for the previous identity and child recalled. And Dr. Eamon Stevenson was, was not some quack job. He, he worked for the University of Virginia he had a stellar academic record and he carried this work out to a high standard, uh, academic standard. And he, he, his critics noted that he, he put things into his presentations and, and when he collected the data, he put things in there which could be used to be skeptical of them. So he wasn't just trying to make a compelling case. He was a real scientist just trying to see where the evidence led. So uh, if we look at different ways we could analyze the data, his critics have offered various types of objections. And usually they're just sort of the typical skeptical rhetoric, like, you know, oh, it's just, you know, fertile imaginations and suggestions. And, you know, they're more common in places where reincarnation is believed. Uh, but there's various ways we can analyze to separate out which of these is the more accurate interpretation. So Dr. Ian Stevenson was quite conservative. He didn't think we can prove reincarnation is true based on this. He just, you know, he called one of his books 20 cases suggestive of reincarnation. But nonetheless, uh, we, we can conclude that this is the best interpretation. So to analyze it and see, you know, if reincarnation is true, what would we expect to find versus if it's, if, you know, the skeptical story if, or one of the skeptical stories were true, what would you be? would we expect to find? So there's three or four things we can look at. So uh, to find, you know, three or four different 
types of evidence all corresponding, uh, it then becomes a better explanation to have the one explanation which explains it all rather than to have three or four things which are all just coincidences. So to have the birthmarks, to have behaviors and phobias all match, and um, and then memories which, which are proven to be veridical, meaning we can actually go and find that the things these childs are remembering are accurate. And the other thing a skeptic might say is, uh, so he avoided doing cases of hypnosis because suggestion can be powerful and people can imagine remembering stuff. He, he liked cases where children spontaneously remembered something and then he would investigate those. The best cases would be ones where he was able to interview the child very early on before any contact had been made with the family of the deceased. Uh, and he has several cases like that. But uh, one way they analyze to see if it's just suggestion and, you know, later they contact the family and gain more information and that's fed to the child and the child starts reciting the information which they receive through ordinary methods. We can rule that out by analyzing the data for... So if that was the case, then the case should become stronger over time as the child hears more about the deceased person who they're claiming to have been in their past life their story should get stronger. But what actually happens is the stories don't get stronger along that vector. They actually get weaker over time as the child's memory fades. And most of these children forget them by around the age of seven. Uh, there's few cases, uh, Gopal Sharma's one case where the boy remembered it uh, much longer. I can't remember the age. He might've been 19 when Dr. Ian Stevenson last spoke to him. He still remembered the past life and he wished he didn't. So I'll leave it there for that. There's near-death experiences. Uh, one famous case is uh, Maria. Uh, she died of cardiac arrest while she was medically dead. Um, she saw a, she wandered around the hospital building, just you know, disembodied. She saw a shoe on the roof of the building, which was later confirmed to be there, and it's described that she. Yeah, she'd come face to face with a tennis shoe poised on the window ledge and there's no explanation for how she could have seen it. It was dark, late at night when she came in. Uh, she spotted details on the shoe that you couldn't actually see from inside the building. You would have had to have been floating around near the shoe outside the building to see it. So that's one case. And then the other line of argument I was going to give, but I think I'll drop it for this time, was from uh, fine-tuning. So fine-tuning is evidence for intelligent design uh, for, for God because of inference to the best hypothesis. Of course, it doesn't get us, you know, a personal God necessarily, but it does get us an intelligent creator. 30 more seconds. And <laughs> <four seconds. laughs> so, yeah, anyway, I guess I'll just leave it there. It's an inference to the best hypothesis. We Thank can discuss you. that later if they want to push back on it. You got it. So thank you very much, Siddharth and Arjuna. We went a little bit over the opening, but like I said, it's flexible, so that's totally okay, and we'll do the same for Ask Yourself and Jack. Thanks so much, Ask Yourself and Jack, for being here as well. The floor is all yours for your opening. Well, I mean, I invited you here, Jack. Do you want to set the direction? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I don't really have much of an opening, Um you know, it's because really what I would need to do is try to understand the the nature of the hypothesis and the structure of the inference to that hypothesis, right? I take it that's the basic framework that you guys have set up is that 
you're trying to make some kind of explanatory inference um, from some phenomena um, that are observed, right, to some posited explanation. But I'm just not clear on what that explanation is, right? Like, what is the explanatory hypothesis in question, right? So I'm not really, I'm, see, I would, what I would really like to do in most cases is grant um, the empirical facts, right? I mean, this is, would typically be my strategy in uh, debates, say, with Christians about the resurrection, right? Um, is to just grant that Jesus rose from the dead rather than engage in exegetical, yeah, historical, and empirical debates about whether that really happened, right? And see whether there really is an inference from that fact to um, the existence of God or the truth of Christianity or what have you. Because um, I think there's usually going to be conceptual issues that will save a lot of time and difficulty to focus on to get to the heart of the matter without having to dispute the empirical facts, right? So I'm, yeah, so I don't really know exactly what the explanatory hypothesis is, right? And so that, that's one issue. I mean, the one thing that I actually know something about or that I've debated on before is fine tuning, right? I don't really know. I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time talking about reincarnation and nor about sort of predictions about things like the age of the universe or the age of the sun and the piranhas, right? So I don't actually know anything about that. In the case of fine tuning, I have never really understood how there's an inference, um, how there's a good inference to an intelligent designer as an explanation for um, that data. And so that's something I could talk about with a little bit more experience, you know, if you want to lay that out at some point. Um, so yeah, so I don't really have much to say to dispute anything that you've said. I'm prepared at least for the moment to grant all the empirical claims uh, as being true. And I'm just sort of wondering, you know, what the, I want to get some clarity on what the hypothesis is and what the inferential structure is. Um, so you can, Isaac, if you want to pick up from there, I can, can stop. Yeah, sure. Um well, I mean, I think that I'm fine with that kind of approach. And that's also what I'm inclined towards, you know, being someone who hasn't spent time studying things like, I don't know, like, like, what are we talking about? Like cosmology or like any of that kind of stuff, the age of the earth or like the historicity of Jesus, any, any of the, I, although we're not talking of Christians here, but any of that kind of empirical stuff, I don't know a whole lot about. So I'm also inclined to just grant the empirics <clears throat> and see if just granting that they're able to give an argument that will get to the conclusion that God exists. So, and just no, there's no point in me just repeating a lot of what Jack just said. Um, so why don't we just hop into it? Like, could we maybe clarify what exactly the inference is? And you guys gave a few, so let's sort of like select one to, 
to focus on. I think that would be a good idea instead of we don't we don't want to be hopping fine around tuning, between. Fine tuning is a good one for me if you guys are open to that because I've talked about that before. But um, but you know it could be any of them. You got it. I we'll think jump fi- into the open discussion sorry. then. Thank you very much. Go ahead, gentlemen. Fine tuning has been done a lot, so maybe we'll do the original stuff and stick to the reincarnation and. Uh, cosmic stuff we can we can do fine tuning another day obviously there's we're we're tied on time okay the the you know the the inference would be you know you know that that you, we could call the knowledge which is proved by reincarnation by the re, dr ian stevenson's work and by you, the cosmic accuracies found in the piranhas we could call them predictions so just like einstein predicted that we would measure uh a, bend, a curvature to the light as it traveled around the sun and they proved that we that that was taken as evidence because it was a prediction made by the theory it's not that every little detail of general relativity has been proven it's just that key features of it have been proven and the rest of it is inferred based on that so the inference would be that the features which we we can very empirically verify have proven accurate therefore it's sensible to conclude that the rest of it would also be true. So that's that's one line of argument. Well, let's, the other... let's stop there because because I I'm just not understanding what is the explanatory hypothesis in question, and how do you derive this specific prediction from that? Well, there, there's so, no other way for these ancients to have. Had, oh, I'll let Sidarsko, but there's no other way for these ancients to have had this knowledge. They didn't have the scientific instruments. Yeah, I'll let Sidarsko. So, uh, as I started in presentation, I mentioned in the beginning of the presentation that there are various ways to get knowledge. There is empirical way, which is I call it as ascending method or the inductive method, and or the other one, which is we accept knowledge as it is stated in the Vedas or Puranas. Now, presently, I'm sure you and we will agree that we have confidence in the empirical method. And I was trying to bring the same confidence in the Puranas and Vedas. Now, to build that confidence, we shared this empirical data because people have faith or trust in the empirical data. And since the claim which you made that the Puranas are genuine source of knowledge or authentic source of knowledge is very extraordinary claim, we try to back it up with with the evidence which is extraordinary in nature. By extraordinary, I mean that it can't be a fluke or a guess. And it is not post-talk, which it has been done. It is stated in the Puranas for thousands of years. Does that make sense, Uh, 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 Jacob? Not really, because I'm not clear on what the explanance is. So that's, that's what I'm trying to get focused on. I'm trying to understand what is it that you're claiming explains these phenomena what is that explanatory hypothesis and how do you derive a a prediction from positing that um, explanatory entity or set of facts whatever that whatever it is how do you generate a prediction of the unexplained phenomena in question it might just be worth it, focusing on 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 the first. I mean, t- tell me if I'm wrong here, Jack. But just for simplicity's sake, maybe maybe first let's just focus on the initial question there, which is just what exactly is the explanatory hypothesis? 
Yeah, what is it that we're trying to infer to from the from the data? Well, the hypothesis is that the Puranas are authentic source of knowledge. What what exactly does it mean to say that the Puranas are an authentic source of knowledge? Well, okay, let me get, break it down. So, like currently, you know, uh, suppose uh, if you were to want, if you want to say see something in the sky, you go and visit a uh, you know say Hubble's telescope, you know, wherever they have their observatory, you go there. And you trust it that when you're seeing through the, you know, that telescope, you're seeing the stars accurately. It's not that the instrument is defective. What you're, what you, what you are seeing to the instrument, of all the instrument could be defective, but you have confidence that these scientists who have worked very hard, they put them such so much hard labor. This instrument is giving me correct form of knowledge. What I'm seeing there through my eyes, you know, in the sky is not some movie which has been put into the telescope. Somebody's trying to cheat me, but actually I'm really seeing the sky. So there are different ways of gaining knowledge. So one way of gaining knowledge is, you know, say telescope by which you're getting knowledge of the world. And what I'm proposing here in our presentation that the Puranas are a perfect way of gaining knowledge, as good as a telescope, which gives you a vision of the sky. Does that make sense? I mean, I want to say one more thing, I, you know, see Jacob, you are a philosopher. So the terms which you use, you have to a little bit explain those terms also in sometimes like easy, like use some easy words because you know I'm a computer scientist. I don't usually come across terms like the terms you use in your papers or scholarly papers. So I would appreciate if you can always you know use simpler terms for whenever you're asking questions. Thank a, you. A point point of process here might just be if if a word is uttered that you don't know the meaning of, just feel free to yeah. interject because we don't we don't have any interest in saying something you don't understand, right? So if if you hear a word and you don't know what it means. Just interrupt and ask. It's fine. And we'll do the same. Sure, sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Isaac. I appreciate it. Yeah, no no problem. And, you know, I don't I don't want to cramp Jack's style here if he's got something to say. But it's it's not, I, I assume, Jack, when you ask for the explanatory hypothesis, you're looking for what explains the given, like, uh, uh, phenomenon we're talking about here, whether it's like uh, what we were talking about, like the age of the universe or whatever the empirical claim is. You're, you're looking for what explains that, right? Yes, that's right. And so what explains, what, exp what explains the claim that the age, uh, age of the universe is stated like some, some number in, in the Puranas? Is that the question? Yeah, so like the idea is that there's a mystery as to how um, this kind of knowledge could have been had without access to modern scientific techniques and so on, right? I take it that's the basic idea is that it's some mystery as to how this could be, if it's not taken to be a coincidence, right? Um, because presumably the idea is that that's somehow improbable that it's a coincidence. Um, question is what explains this fact, right? Uh, okay. Okay. And that's what I'm trying to understand. What is it that yeah. you're inferring to? But it sounds like what what the claim in question is that you're trying to. Well, I, I'm not sure whether you and Ar Arjuna are actually presenting arguments for the same thesis exactly. I mean, I realize you probably have the same beliefs, at least you know, with regard 
to your religious perspective or something like that. But, um, but uh, it sounds like what you're saying is is that what you're trying to prove is that the piranhas are reliable or something like that, which is a little bit different than maybe an explanatory hypothesis in the ordinary. Yeah, could could that be Jack? You cut out. Are you still speaking, or no? I was okay. done. I was saying. Yeah. I was done. I was saying that that it's a little different from an explanatory hypothesis in the ordinary sense, right? There's a question. You could you could phrase the problem as there's a question: Are the piranhas reliable? And then we look to see if, in every case, we can, you know, whatever whatever um, propositions we interpret as being stated by those texts, we can look for corroborating evidence. Uh, uh, and so maybe the idea is that if we can find corroborating every evidence in every case, then we ought to trust the other statements that are in the text that we don't have a way of corroborating I wonder if that's sort of the basic. Idea. That's what I took it to be. I like I took the argument to be something like if the piranhas are reliable and the piranhas claim that God exists, then God exists. The piranhas are reliable, the piranhas claim that God exists, therefore God exists. I assume that was the the inference. Is that right, um Siddharth? You're muted, Siddharth. Yes. Okay. So I think presumably we're not going to question the second and third premise there that the piranhas state God exists. Well, I guess depending what we mean by reliable, maybe that does need to be challenged. But the first premise seems um, seems suspect. Um, it's not clear to me. It's not clear to me why I would accept that. I'm also I'm a bit I'm a bit cautious to go. Um, too far from the line of reasoning that you're trying to press, Jack. Like, do I guess it depends what road we we want to go down here. Do we want to go down the road of like looking at that argument and examining the premises, or are you are you wanting to go somewhere else here? Oh, I mean, there's a lot of different possibilities. I'm not really sure what the best way to go is. See, sometimes, you know, one analog in debates with um, uh, Christians who who use uh, like the minimal facts argument, uh, facts about the resurrection to argue for the existence of God, is that we ought to infer that Jesus is who he said he was, the son of God, because he um, was able... You cut out because he was... Um, not hearing you there, Jack. Am I coming through? Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, he's cut out. Um, okay. Well, not sure what to say to that. Just, I mean, feel free to cut in whenever you're back. Pardon? To 
correctly predict seamless events. Right. Jack, we, we missed we missed we, we missed most of that. We missed most of that there. Could could you could you just say that again, Jack? You cut out. Sorry, yeah. I, I think I lost my connection for a second. Um yeah, so it in there's an analog, uh, it seems to me, with a certain argument that's popular uh in Christian apologetics, uh the minimal facts argument. Um there are Think. Okay. It, sound, it sounds like it sounds like Jack might be having some technical kind of argument that um, Jack, I hate we to ought to. And all right, give me a second Wi-Fi so that you can hear me better. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that's fine. I can I can talk till Jack comes back. I guess where I'm at is I don't understand why we would accept the first premise of the argument. Is there is there an argument for that first premise that if um, if the piranhas are reliable um, and they state, well, <laughs> reliable, I guess we, if we say reliable, it's going to beg the question. If we say everything in the, like, are you saying that the piranhas are a 100% reliable source of information? Oh, you're muted again. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm claiming, what we're claiming is that, that whatever part of the Puranic piranhas are testable, they are, uh, those are, you know, 100% reliable. But there are parts of Quran which can't be tested, just like in the theory of relativity, there are parts of it which cannot be tested because they correspond to higher dimensions. Like, can you really see distortion of space and time? I don't think so. It's not visible because mm. to our eyes. There might be a can weird you? analogy going on there, though, because if those other things are somehow entailed by relativity, that would be distinct from if, you know, Einstein just included some other statement in his thesis, I guess, that wasn't yeah, directly yeah. connected to relativity. He just threw in like, and unicorns exist, right? You might, you yeah, might, yeah. Cause you do, you, yeah, you don't want to make an analogy to a case where some other things are entailed by, um, yes. So, so in this I'm case, I'm hearing a lot of background case, noise. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm hearing that too. So, I don't, does anybody have anything like, uh, music? music? James, you're the only one lit up right now. Uh, no, <laughs> No, actually, I, I'm uh, right next to a big festival going on. I'm trying to, it'll be only for the next five minutes. So I'm trying to, you know, speak into the mic and uh, please, you have to tolerate. Or maybe Arjun can take, can, can speak for a few minutes. I can be on mute for a few minutes. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, so I guess that, well, I was asking about that first premise. And again, I know Jack was trying to talk. So just feel free to cut in whenever you're back. But I was asking about the first premise where we say, if the piranhas are reliable and they say God exists, then God exists, kind of like an implication, like P and Q implies R. I guess that one thing that came to my mind, because I'm doubtful of that premise, right? But then one thing that came to my mind is that if we're just starting from the assumption that they're, everything they say is correct, then it's going to be basically like a question-begging argument because we're, we're starting from that position, right? We're, it's, it seems like, it seems, and when when I said are we saying that everything in there is correct? It sounded like Siddharth was responding by saying, well, there's some claims in there that are testable and those are correct. And then there's also other claims in there that aren't testable, but you know, we ought to accept those because they're, um, I don't know, they're kind, of, they're kind of showing up in the same space as the ones that we've tested that seem correct. And he drew an analogy to Einstein's theory of relativity um, and said that, 
you know, we could test certain elements of that theory and not others, but we accept the ones we couldn't test um, because the ones that we could test turned out to be true. And I just, I drew a bit of a disanalogy there because in one case, it seems like you're talking about entailments of a tested theory. In the other case, it sounds like you're talking about a tacked on claim where it's not obvious how it's entailed by the things we have tested. Right. Like we might want to posit that there was a means by which the, let's say we grant that the, what the piranhas predict uh, or state that we've been able to corroborate is correct. And we think that there's, it's not a coincidence, right? So we think that they had some means to acquire this knowledge. Um, they, they had access to information that we don't have access to that allowed them to, to acquire this knowledge, right? Now, presumably we don't know what that is, um, what that means is, but I guess there's a question as to why we would think that those abilities, right, would uh, also give them the ability to make other claims that we can't necessarily independently verify, right? So if they claim, well, God exists, right? And I mean, that's a prop, you know, what, what it means to say that God exists is going to be a problem in itself. But putting that aside, right, we might just ask, well, how could they know that, right? And I take it that you're just saying, um, well, given that they were reliable on these other things, we ought to believe that they would know, they would have the means to know that as well. I think that Isaac is just sort of saying, and I agree with this, why would we sign on to that, right? Uh, yeah, we, why we, would we, we get the argument. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, you could call it a logical entailment if we claim... Uh, you know, if it becomes apparent that there's there's no other explanation how this knowledge could have got there, so they didn't have telescopes, they didn't have other methods of getting it, so we it then becomes an entailment to, you know, one possible explanation as divine revelation. What 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 would the alternative explanation be? To, in order to for that not to be entailed, you'd have to have a competing hypothesis that had more that was a better explanation oh no okay so there's there's problems with what you're doing there so you don't just get to assert something's a logical entailment you'd have to show that um and i don't i I guess it sounded also like you said that your theory just like we start from the position that's correct unless something else is shown to be um correct so maybe you claim kind of like that but that seems sketchy that just seems like you know, why would I be motivated to start from the position that your theory is correct if you don't have give us some kind of reason to? Well, I mean, you can do that as a working hypothesis. I wasn't saying assume it's true. I was saying, you know, if it's true, what would we expect to find the kind of thing, you know, so treating it like a working hypothesis is fine. And then, you know, you, you take a theory, behave as if it's true and see what kind of results you get by analyzing through that light. And if that doesn't work, then you try a different hypothesis. So, But when you talk about a logical entailment, do you think that it somehow follows from the universe being a certain age or whatever exactly the empirical claim is that turns out to be correct that's made in the Puranas? Do you think that it somehow follows from that, that God exists? Because if you think there's an entailment there, you have to show it. So... uh, yeah, so one thing is that, you know, that the Puranas, just want to give you some background information here. 
now puranas don't just state these facts about age of the universe or age of the sun just like plain you know some you know some some like extra chapters of their book it is part of the whole theology which is the whole accounts of history which are given in the puranas so puranas are talking about you know uh, personalities like brahma who are managing the cosmic world and if the puranas posit that it's a higher dimensional world where they from where they control or from where they manage the world around us and as part of explaining the accounts of brahma they are talking about his lifetime and how how and when he created the sun or how when he you know took part in that that work so just as you said you know like in einstein's theory of relativity it's not that we can just add in a, another statement saying hey unicorns exist and then because einstein's theory of relativity works and and because it says in the same paper unicorn exists so we will accept unicorns exist because it has to be connected to the to the, to the model so the model which is there in the puranas that model itself states or god is part of that model and that model also gives the age of the because the the the, the puranas themselves are like a you know uh you can say uh, you know very very much like interconnected account of stories and in, as part of those accounts we hear these numbers does that make sense i think well, i see the no so go ahead eyes no it's okay you go for it i invited you here i want i want to give you a chance to talk so yeah well see i i'm i'm still a little bit confused by the the inference right so the idea something like god would have the god presumably by god you do you mean some being that is all knowing or something like that um and so given that he's all knowing he would have the capacity to know these facts and so given that we don't have like say a naturalistic explanation for how these facts could have been known it's therefore reasonable to assume that Jack, can you repeat one more time i i think i lost you one more time can you say one more time your last couple no, of sentences no problem yeah so i'm trying I, it sounds to me like the inference the inference may be something like this that we don't have a naturalistic explanation for how they could have known this but an all knowing supernatural being would have that knowledge and would be in a be in a position to tell these people these things uh presumably like the human authors of the puranas if that's who you think wrote the, the those scriptures um and so that's therefore a better explanation than any possible naturalistic explanation that we don't even have is that the idea uh that is secondary the first and the, pr- the primary point i'm trying to drive home is here is that that you know uh before we look up for other possible alternative explanations for this data we should look at the uh the point that uh that the puranas are you know a, a way of gaining knowledge which is reliable so just like we depend oh you cut out you went on mute i heard just like we do Well, I mean, okay, sorry. So, sorry about that. That was my fault. I was trying to, f- I muted the wrong person because I heard background noise. Forgive me for that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no problem. No problem. You know, I know James. You're trying to be a really good host there. You're trying to make sure that everybody has a really good experience. So, no problem. Um, so going back to the point, uh, I was saying that the 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 primary point I'm trying we are trying to bring home here 
is that the Puranas are providing a source of knowledge which is uh, reliable. And we don't necessarily need to look into methods like induction or empiricism, empiricism or rationalism for uh, uh, you know, and providing an explanation for what is there in the Puranas. The Puranas are stating something and those people who have you know, trust in the empiric method, they can see the Puranas make these, these claims which are you know, extraordinary claims. They are nowhere testable, you know, you know, you can say statements which are found in the Puranas, which have been found to be true by the modern scientists. And thus, the Puranas are should be accepted as a source of knowledge, as a reliable source of knowledge. That is the primary point. And the secondary point, which uh, Jack was talking about, which is that, you know, hey, maybe we can go the other route that there is no, you know, natural explanation for the data found in the Puranas. That's the secondary point. We can take that reasoning also, but that is secondary. It's just that, that horn in the background. <laughs> yeah, so that, that sounds like we're going back to the original sort of issue, which was this question that it seemed like the the thesis that at least you were trying to defend was the idea that we ought to rely on the piranhas as a source of knowledge, right? Um, so... I take it that, but again, that just sort of raises the question, are you just saying that because some things in it are true, the things that we've been able to corroborate independently, we therefore should think that the rest of it is true, the things that we aren't able to corroborate? Well, we can call, I don't know if Sid's trying to talk, he's on mute. We can call it an inference to the best hypothesis too. Like, you know, if this were true, what would we expect to find? We would expect to find that all the pieces of all the statements made, which we can be verified, would be vindicated. And that's what we find. Could we maybe get a, a direct answer to what Jack asked there? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say that that's what's going on, that we because we find so many things in there that are accurate that we, we then make the assumption that other statements will be accurate. But why, why draw that inference, right? Why not think that the text is one which is accurate about some things and not accurate about things that we can't test? Like, what is it that, what is, it that is favoring the one hypothesis over the other? Let's just make that super, super crystal clear. So we're getting two hypotheses on the table, okay? So one is the piranhas are reliable about both the things we've confirmed and the things they haven't confirmed. The other is they're reliable about the things we've confirmed, but not reliable about the things we haven't confirmed. What is it that would give us reason to accept the one hypothesis over the other. I just wanted it to be clear when you said that, Jack, because you said the two hypotheses and I was worried it would get kind of lost there. I just want to clarify yeah, what they are. Yeah, because yeah. uh, it seems like he, it seems like the evidence would be equally consistent with both hypotheses, right? So why are we, yeah. um, why are we and, inferring and, to these other oh, facts? And, the and there's a there's a word there, there's a word we, we can talk about that in one sec. Happy to answer, but there's also a word for this I think, which would be under determination, right? 
Yeah, this seems like there's an underdetermination problem, and so I'm kind of wondering how to resolve that. Right. So the bits that can't be verified empirically can be verified subjectively. So not all truths are accessible in the you know external empirical world. Some truths are esoteric, and you access those through subjective means. So one thing that's esoteric is if I have a headache, you kind of just have to take my word for it. I'm the only one that can you know prove my headache. Some headaches are what do they call it? There's uh, there's a word when um, idiopathic, meaning they have no idea what's causing it, but that doesn't mean the person's not having a headache just because we can't find a neural correlate for it. So we can prove, the other statements can be proven by the practice of Krishna consciousness. And by following this practice, you elevate your consciousness to the level where you can perceive the truths that these statements are referring to. So uh, I want to add something there. Just one thing. I, I want to just add, since you brought in the term underdetermination, you know, there's, this brings us, us to the general problem of underdetermination in philosophy of physics. In many important cases, there is not enough. In many important cases, there is not enough evidence to decide which of several alternative theories is true. Actually, if the history of physics is any guide, none of the theories is true. A physical theory is never proven true. It's only proven false. The longer a theory stands up to relentless experimentation, the more confidence we have that it, that it is approximately correct, but can never be proven to be absolutely true. Absolute said, true. There's, there's an obvious problem with, with what you're just saying let me, finish, right let, me, let, let me finish my point, then, then you can interrupt. Yeah. Like two, more, two, sure. more, two more words. Absolute truth doesn't exist in science. It is important to be clear about what science can and cannot deliver. Yes, go ahead. Sorry about that. Okay, so this is how I'm understanding the dialectic right now. Okay, so I'm understanding that there's an argument that's being given that has the form... If the pranas are accurate and uh, the pranas claim that God exists, then God exists. The pranas are accurate. The uh, pranas claim that God exists. Therefore, God exists. So when we ask why we would accept that first premise, um, it seems it seems like the response is, well, if the pranas say a bunch of accurate stuff, then or a bunch of stuff we can confirm, then you know we ought believe the stuff that we can't confirm. So then. When we raise a problem with that kind of sub-argument, right, that argument for the first premise, it seems like, uh, so we, we raise the problem of saying, okay, well, there's two hypotheses here. The one is that the piranhas are um, correct uh, about both the things we've been able to confirm and the things we haven't been able to confirm. And the other is that they're uh, correct about the things we've been able to confirm and incorrect about the things we haven't been able to confirm. You could also create other hypotheses here like partially correct about the things we've been able we haven't been able to confirm like maybe some of those things are true some are false whatever let's just leave the two hypotheses on the table for now so then when we ask it's when we say okay well it looks like we've got an underdetermination problem here what what exactly is the symmetry breaker that should cause us to favor you know one of these theories over the other it sounds like you both gave separate ones so it sounds like arjuna sorry if i'm saying that wrong um is you got it right Oh, okay, good, great. I'm not confident I'll be able to do it again, but I'll try. Um, it sounds like you're saying that the symmetry breaker is that those things that we can't verify, um, I guess, like through our normal empirical methods, they can be verified subjectively. And then uh, Siddharth is offering a different symmetry breaker, and you're saying it's about the length of time that the hypotheses have existed for. So I think Siddharth's just straightforwardly fails because one hypothesis isn't older than the other. 
and then we could talk about Arjuna's. Maybe Jack has something to say to that. Sorry, how does my hypothesis fail? Can you explain one more time? Well, yeah, you, you tried to break the symmetry between the two hypotheses and suggest that one, that there's not an underdetermination problem in virtue of one hypothesis being older. But that's why, why do we think one's older? I'm not talking about one being older. The point I'm trying to say, say to you is that, that if, you use, if you use the modern scientific methods, you know, there is always a question whether a theory can ever be proven to be absolutely true. Because you know, modern science uses methods which are always in question. Some people ask, you know, hey, this method is, you know, is, is this method going to give the truth for uh, forever and forever? Not really. You know, the methods get replaced by, you know, you know improved methods, mm -hmm. and they give different kind of knowledge. So, the point I was trying to raise there was that in science, you can never have absolute truth. That's not possible. So there is always a problem of underdetermination, especially in philosophy of physics. When you're when you have underdetermination between two hypotheses, though, you ought to be agnostic, which is correct, unless you. I mean, don't you agree? You think surely, if if the evidence equally supports two hypotheses, then it's not the case that you ought to select one over the other. Well, the first hypothesis which you have there, which is that the other part of the data is incorrect and the first part of the data is correct, that hypothesis is made post hoc. So when you have two hypotheses, one of which is made post hoc, because the other one is you know, written thousands of years ago, we were, I would take the first one. Like suppose if you're doing- But there was the age thing that, again. There was the age no, thing again, right? Why, why would you get to say one is older? We can say, I mean, who knows? Someone might have had that other hypothesis back then. It's not, if, if the idea is you just, you don't ever prove theories, you just knock theories down. It's like, okay, well, both the theory that everything in there is correct and the theory that the stuff we've been able to confirm is correct and the other stuff may not be, you know, both of those are still standing. Neither has been knocked down, right? So it doesn't work as a symmetry breaker. No, it works because one of them is made post hoc after observing the data. Like, you know, hey, <clears throat> suppose I'm, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we are in a, in a game and in that game, we're trying to figure out what is behind each door. Okay. Now, one person says that behind door one, two, and three out of the 10 doors, there is something. Another person says, you know, that, uh, after the first three doors are open, he says, you know, behind first, first three doors, there is, uh, what do you call, there is, there is something. And behind next seven doors, there is, uh, you know, there is nothing. I mean, let me, let me put it differently. Um, uh, because, uh, okay. So one person claims we're playing some kind of a game there where we have 10 doors and we're trying to find out some kind of hidden, you know, wealth behind the doors. So <clears throat> the doors which can be opened are one, two, and three. Person A comes, and there's two persons, person A and person B. Person A says that I know what's behind each door. And he says that behind first three doors, one, two, and three, there is something. And behind next seven doors, uh, out of the next seven doors, only door number eight has you know, wealth. Now, after we open first three doors, person B comes and he sees the three doors are open. You know, and he says, you know, hey, you know, these three doors have something, that's what I'm saying. And behind next seven doors, there is nothing. Now, next seven doors have not been opened yet. Now, whom would we put our confidence in? I would put my confidence in the first person because, you know, he made the prediction before, you know, the doors were open. So that's how science progresses. Science progresses when you have a theory, competing theories, which theory, you know, makes a prediction which can be found later to be true. Of course, it can be the case that, that, that uh, you know, that, that, that uh, the theory which was made post hoc could be correct. 
But when you have two co competing theories for which we have a symmetry, as you rightly pointed out, I would go with the one which is predating the discovery, not something which is made post hoc. So That's we can. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, sure, I'll just make a quick point then pass to you. So we, we can discuss post-hocness as a symmetry breaker, but I just want to clarify that the initial symmetry breaker, which is how long the theory has existed without being refuted, just fails. So you're adding in a second one. Um, and I was just going to ask Jack, um, do, you, do you accept the general characterization of the dialectic that I've given here, or are you, are you seeing this differently? Because that's what it's looking like. Yeah, I, I accept it, but I, it seems to me that Siddhartha may be um, employing a different or engaging in a different dialectic, right? Because the way that, because otherwise I can't really understand his objection. Because the way I understand it is we have these facts. Let's grant for the sake of argument that there are these predictions that. Uh, um, how old is the universe? Or, how old is the sun? And, and mass yeah, extinctions, yeah. Right. So there are these things that the piranhas state, right? So the question then is, um, it seems to me that what we're doing is we're asking um, what is more likely to be true, that the piranhas are reliable about everything, including stuff that we don't have independent corroboration for or corroboration at all for, or the hypothesis that um, the piranhas are reliable about everything. Right. And so I just don't see how if you frame the issue that way, there's even an issue of uh, one of those hypotheses being ad hoc. Right. We're just asking the question. Here's a here's a fact which we're granting for the sake of argument that these statements in the piranhas are true. Right. So which is the more plausible hypothesis that everything in it is true or that. Um, you know, only some things in it are true, at least the things that we um, have been able to corroborate, right? But why should I think, why ought I think, right, that everything in it is true just because some of it is true, right? That's what, that, I just don't see how the issue of like an ad hoc auxiliary hypothesis even arises when the uh, dialectic is presented that way. So, uh, thank you, uh, Jack. Since you are a philosopher, you know you are able to uh, put things in a what do you call uh, in, a, in a very deep manner, and I really appreciate for having you for this conversation. I'm not actually a philosopher, by the way, but that's flattering. <laughs> in any case. What didn't you, you said something about philosophy in, in your I introduction? Study, I study it informally, but I I don't actually have any formal training in philosophy. And these days, studying informally or formally is practically the same. You know, this is the information age. You know, people That's become right. computer programmers by learning online. They don't necessarily. He, go to he's school. being modest, Siddharth. He's just he's being modest. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> That's nice to know. <laughs> yeah. You know, others, we had to debate that hypothesis right now. He's a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> is there an underdetermination problem? Yeah. So, um, you know. Um, uh, of course, you know, the, uh, the, the, since there is no objective verification of the part that, you know, that God exists, you know, through empirical methods, you know, you, you are, 
you, you know, we are up in air, you know, whether, you know, how can we state that? But my whole proposition was that uh, the Puranas are genuine source of knowledge. And since they state these numbers or this data, which is extraordinary set of, you know, data, not something which is, you know, uh, some usual stuff like, you know, earth is around or anything like that. So uh, one can then go ahead and invest one's time in investigating the method which are given there for verifying the claim regarding, you know, soul or regarding, you know, uh, one's connection with God, because those methods are also available in the Puranas. Uh, if somebody were to say, you know, hey, I, I need to be proven empirically that God exists before I can, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I need some kind of like empirical corroboration just for that part of the Puranas also, then, uh, you know, one can wait for that. Because as I said earlier, that modern science is progressing slowly and slowly towards absolute truth. It took them 200 years to reach to a place where they have accepted this much part of the Puranas. And I'm hopeful, given that the progress of the science in the last 200 years, that in the future, they will start, they will vindicate more parts of the Puranas also in the future. However, as I said, there are various ways of gaining knowledge. Like I'm sure you gain knowledge through, uh, you know, your eyes. You know, we gain knowledge through like phones. We trust them. Right right now, I'm just, what I'm seeing in the phone is uh, a Zoom debate. I trust it. So similarly, what I'm offering is that we don't, you know, question, you know, after testing in one time, hey, today I use my phone and the phone worked. Maybe, you know, and an hour later, maybe I need to check it. Maybe somebody just, you know, uh, some kind of like, you know, uh, cheating me by putting some kind of like crazy Trojan horse software into my phone. And actually I'm not, this, this phone is recording me or something like that. You know, we can come with all kinds of crazy hypotheses and, you know, be afraid of using the phone. What we are offering here is that you can, one can go ahead and try the methods of the Puranas, which also offer, you know, techniques for subjectively verifying the claim that God exists. However, on the strength of what we have shown, the extraordinary data points, one should have confidence in the Puranas that what they are that they are a reliable source of knowledge. Just in any case of any theory, like as I gave, gave the example of theory of relativity, can you mm. see space and time distortion? Can you see that? But Siddharth, you're you're arguing for the premise we aren't challenging, right? So we're not we're not we're granting for the sake of argument that they're generally accurate. And, and I should clarify here: we're assuming we're assuming you're not begging the question when you say accurate. We're, we're assuming you're saying they've been accurate about a certain amount of claims. But we're not we're not challenging that second premise, right? If the argument has the structure, if the Puranas are accurate and the Puranas claim God exists, then God exists. The Puranas are accurate. The Puranas claim God exists, therefore God exists. We're not challenging that premise that says that they're accurate. We, we're understanding that to mean they've been accurate about a, a bunch of empirical predictions. We're questioning that first premise. And a little side note, um, we're not asking. It, do, it doesn't have to be empirical proof for God. We'd, we'd accept an a priori argument. It's just you, you've kind of gotten yourself into the case where... Well, I guess, I guess I'll just clarify the problem. We're talking about the first premise, right? We're talking about why should we accept that if the Puranas are accurate and the Puranas claim God exists, then God exists, right? We're saying it, it, sound, it sounds like, it, it's, it seems like we can have two hypotheses there, right? One, that everything's accurate in the Puranas. The other, that some things are accurate. And we're just, we still haven't heard like a symmetry breaker. I've, I've heard three proposed. The first I think was from Arjuna, who suggested that the 
things that can't be confirmed empirically can be confirmed through some kind of you know, subjective, like phenomenological, something like something about maybe your subjective experience. We can talk about that. I heard the length of time that the hypothesis has existed without being refuted symmetry breaker, but that's not going to work because that's equally true of both hypotheses. And then I also heard um, a symmetry breaker about ad hocness and we're kind of, we're kind of getting into that. So how, how exactly are you breaking the symmetry such that you're able to say there isn't an underdetermination problem here. Well, let's go back to the second point. I, I don't understand why you're saying both the hypotheses have been there for the same length because the data was not there for the these data points which I discussed uh, before, like you know, a couple of years ago. So this the second hypothesis which I'm proposing that the parts of the Puranas which have been shown to be correct are the correct ones, and the parts which have not been shown to be correct are the ones which we don't know about. How do you arrive at that second hypothesis? And how, why are you saying that that hypothesis has been there for longest? I feel you have made the second hypothesis on the spot. It's a post-hoc hypothesis, isn't it? That's, another, that's a different way to try to break the symmetry. That's talking about post-hocness. I'm just talking about the initial way that you tried to break the symmetry, which is referring to how long it has been that the idea hasn't been shown false, right? Yeah, and but that's... To, yeah, but that's why I was trying to say that that's sort of like the wrong way to frame the problem, right? The way to frame the problem is, okay, here we have a, we, you know, here we are in the modern day, right? We have the ability to now, you know, due to the advent of modern science to actually evaluate some of the claims in the piranhas, right? So it turns out, let's grant for the sake of argument that it turns out that the piranhas makes these remarkable claims that are true given what we know through this from the science information that you presented at, at the outset right let's grant that for the sake of argument right so we're now asking right why ought i to infer that the stuff we don't have independent corroboration that we don't have corroboration for at all right the stuff that we haven't found a way to test yet or maybe uh, inherently untestable, right? Why ought we think that is true rather than just be more modest and think, well, we know some of it is true, right? Um, but we should be um, agnostic about the rest until we have a way of, of evaluating that, right? And I, you know, Josh, my friend Josh makes an interesting point, you know, which is just that, look, if we and I don't mean to, to be in any way insulting to the tradition. I'm not an anti-theist by using this example. So it's, I'm not trying to be cheeky here. But if we have sort of had a Spider-Man comic, right, it makes true statements about New York, right? Like if we, you know, thousands of years from now, we found a, a Spider-Man comic and we wanted to know if that was a reliable um, reliable sort of source of facts about uh, that period in history uh, that it it seems to be reporting on, right? We might say, oh, yeah, well, look, we've been able to check some of the stuff about New York. It gets a lot of the New York geography right, right? Um, but would we be, would that be reason enough to think that it was um, reliable uh, on other statements it makes that we don't have a way of testing, right? So that's sort of the question that we're raising. So I don't think but the was, issue of how old the hypothesis is is really relevant. No, we're not talking about how old. The problem is that 
Uh, let, let me give let me give you a couple of two examples here. So first is the theory of relativity. So in the case of theory of relativity, when Einstein proposed, he proposed that gravity is due to space-time distortion, and uh, that's something which cannot be tested, which cannot be you know seen by eyes or by our direct means. But based upon that, he made a prediction, and that prediction was very precise prediction. And that prediction was that the these stars during the time of eclipse would be deflected, the light from these stars would be deflected by this much distance. And what was found was that Newton, Newton theory also made a prediction. And that theory made the prediction that, you know, that the shift would be only half of it. So when the sun in, in 1919, Sir Arthur was able to, you know, found, find the evidence that matched the Einstein's theory of relativity, his theory was accepted. It was not that it was said, hey, you, maybe you are correct about this prediction, but the rest of the model is, you know, is incorrect. Here in the case of the Puranas, the age of the universe is not some like, you know, some like a hidden around some one statement as I've given in the text. It is part of the whole picture. It's a prediction coming out of the whole model. The model is the history of the universe, which is stated in the Puranas. So, <clears throat> uh, so that is why what I'm proposing here is that just like in the case of theory of relativity, we don't question space-time distortion once we have observed evidence which can be tested. Similarly, I'm offering, like in physics, we do the same thing here with the Puranas. We accept it as a, you know, a genuine source of knowledge. What do you think, Jack? Jack, does it make sense? Or I would like to well, I think that question. there's a, I think there's a problem. I think there's a couple, at least one or two problems there. Um, okay. So I mean, the thing is, right uh, now, the way way I understand, first of all, I I'm having some difficulty with the analogy with Einstein, right? Because there, what I'm understanding is the the way the abductive inference works there right is that you had a this is the way i understand the dialectic with respect to the 1919 experiments right was that you know you had a you had a reigning paradigm let's say which was the you know basically newtonian notion of space time right and in i think it was what the 1870s or something when the nicholson morley experiments took place there was there were some anomalies um, uh, that were observed in certain in those experiments, which were inconsistent with the ether hypothesis, right? Which was part of the Newtonian world picture at that time, right? And so Einstein thought that came up with sort of a new paradigm, which would give up on all these key aspects to the Newtonian picture, right? But could accommodate the anomalies uh, that the Michelson-Morley experiments had discovered, right? Uh, so his theory was consistent with that data, right? Uh, unlike the Newtonian picture, right? Which was inconsistent with that data, right? Now, what I take the 1919 experiments to the reason why that's significant in, say, philosophy of science, right, why this is used as an example in philosophy of science is because that had the, um, the virtue of, that, that provided an additional explanatory virtue, right, to favor the Einsteinian hypothesis. Because the, the problem was that Einstein's theory 
could have been interpreted as a mere just so story, right? A story that was constructed merely to accommodate the anomalous data, yeah. data right? Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. what made the 19, what, what was remarkable about the 1919 experiments that um, gave really strong abductive support to the, to Einstein's theory was that it predicted something that nobody had ever expected to find, right? Nobody had ever thought of before, which is gravitational lensing, right? And so in 1919, they tested this people. Well, you know, I mean, I guess there's some dispute as to whether <laughs> they cooked the data or not, but yeah, yeah. Is, it's been it's been corroborated many many times since, right? Yeah. So we know it, it was found later. That, it, it, it was cooked up actually. <laughs> there yeah, was some yeah. mistake. So they made some mistake. We'll have a few minutes yeah. before we go into Q and A. Oh, okay. Oh, we didn't get very far in this. <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> We're gonna have to do this again sometime. Um, yeah. 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 So I I take it that 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 is there. What you're saying is there's two. So so the way I would frame the dialectic there, just to put it simply, is you have two. Uh, explanatory hypotheses, Newtonian mechanics, and Einstein relativity theory, and one um, both accommodates uh, the anomalous data that the Newtonian picture cannot, but is additionally strongly supported by uh, novel facts that it predicts. So it has this extra virtue of predictive novelty. And so on that basis alone, that it correctly explains the data that Newtonian uh, Newtonian mechanics cannot. And the fact that it makes novel predictions gives it greater, makes it a more explanatorily virtuous theory, right? But see, see, now it seems like you're making a different point with that, which is you're saying that we should treat the, um, we should treat uh, the, model of the universe outlined in the Puranas as a single model, right? And so we should say that the model is likely true, right? Um, given that, um, that it also made novel predictions, right? Which we're granting for the sake of argument for now, right? We're saying, yeah, the Puranas did make novel predictions, right? Um, but see, the issue there is, is that I'm not sure why those predictions are not actually detachable from the model, right? Because that's why, see, it seems mm -hmm. like there's sort of two issues to debate, right? One is, should we have an inference to whether the piranhas are um, reliable about facts that we don't have corroboration of, right? And then the second issue is, should we make some other explanatory inference from the fact that the piranhas were able to predict or correctly state, you know, facts about the age of the universe and the age of the sun and so on, um, to uh, there being a, a divine uh, being or a design, divine source as the best explanation for how it was able to have access to those facts, right? And so what we you know, at one point earlier in this discussion, we were trying to clarify which hypothesis, you know, or which abductive inference we were going to target at the outset, right? And I thought we had fo focused on this one about whether the piranhas were reliable, right? But it sounds like what you're now doing is sort of moving to the other 
hypothesis, which is fine. You know, it's just sort of a shift uh, midstream um, to we, we should take the fact that the piranhas are able to predict these remarkable things as evidence for a divine source, right? And so that's like a whole different, that would, I don't, you know, I'm not sure we're going to really have the time to cover that because we're so far down along the line in this debate. Um, but that seems like there's going to be different issues there as to how to evaluate that, that type of argument. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, I think uh Wanted Sorry, to respond to the Spider-Man story. So, you know, if if there was a Spider-Man comic which was the, the author claimed was predictions about the future and you know things that were going to happen, and these predictions had a probability of being true, which we could work out to be one in ten to the one hundred and eighty-six, and we had enough of the predictions from this comic come true, and there were things the author could not have known other other ways than we might start to ask ourselves if maybe this comic was somehow inspired and was making predictions about the future. Or, you know, suppose I came to, claimed I had psychic, psychic abilities and you're like, oh yeah, prove it. And then I made a series of predictions and the probability of me getting that, that series of predictions right worked out to be one in 10 to the 186, then maybe that would count as evidence for uh, me being psychic. Like there's one savant, I can't remember his name, but anything he's ever read, he can memorize. So you ask him a question, you know, date, you know, anything, any piece of history, he can answer on anything. So do we assume that, you know, well, he's only able to answer the questions which he's correctly answered, and that's probably everything he knows, or do we assume, geez, he's never gotten a question which he couldn't answer. Maybe he can answer every single question. So the, the probabilities involved for these dates, these predictions to be accurate is so great that it's, it, it irks of something divine. Yeah, but that's to go back to the hypothesis that we decided not to, I mean, that's to switch to a different sort of abductive argument, which is that the best explanation for these remarkable, uh, the, the, the remarkable knowledge that the piranhas seems to um, report, right, is that it has a divine source, right? And that that's going to be a whole other inference than the one that that isaac had tried to outline am i right isaac right yeah i, I want to make sure i'm following you actually so i understand you're talking about one argument that would just say um you know so I, i'll have to, I'd have to think about how to structure it but something like you know just in virtue of predicting these crazy things like it's it's likely that uh god exists or the piranhas are are correct or something like that that's that's one of them well, one so is going to be. But, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it might be. It might be useful for us to just make sure we're understanding because I know the line I was pressing, but I'm not totally clear how, yeah, what so the thought, sec, second part you're opening issue, is. So, so I, I thought one issue was: should the fact that the piranhas is accurate about some facts be a license to to us to uh, should, should should we be um, licensed to thus infer that it's reliable about about everything else that it says, right? Ought we to believe that, right? The other things that it says, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one type of argument, right? But the other argument is going to be something like, well, 
there are these remarkable facts that we don't have a naturalistic explanation for, which is that the, Puran, the, the authors of the Puranas seem to know things that it doesn't seem like they could have possibly known given the level of their scientific right, technical right. knowledge. And therefore, the best explanation for them being able to know this is uh, through contact with a divine source. And that, that therefore counts as evidence that the divine source exists, right? And so it's a kind of argument for the existence of God uh, or something like that, right? Those yeah, are two that, different, two, two very yeah, different types of inferences. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Those are two different, two different hypotheses. I'll give you a quick I know you response, to... Siddharth, and then we, we want to jump into the Q&A. So I'll give you a chance to respond. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. There, there are two different hypotheses, and most of our discussion has been talking about the, the first one. Arjun just mentioned the second one at, at the end, you know, just as in a one line to, you know, to give an alternative or a secondary, you know, uh, you can say push also there. But going back to the first one, which is that um, the, uh, the first one where we are saying that Puranas are a reliable source of knowledge and they have stated this information, which has been proven to be true. And you're wondering, you know, how, how would we, or what, like, you know, uh, as, as uh, Isaac pointed out, that there are two competing hypotheses and uh, there have, there's a symmetry problem here. One of the hypotheses is, is, you know, that all that all that Purana says is correct, and the second hypothesis is that whatever we have found right now is correct, but whatever we have not checked is incorrect, or and if not incorrect, is is questionably correct. We just we don't, we don't know. Yeah. Sure. yeah. So to that, I was saying that that's that that's how the science science moves in in science, in modern science, at least in physics. You you know, given given two competing <clears throat> theories, you go with the one theory, which you know makes the predictions and, and, uh, you know, uh, not committing theory. So given that, given, given that we have a theory which makes some predictions and there are parts of it which can't be tested, it, uh, you know, either we can wait for eternity for, for all the parts to be tested before we can use the theory or we use the theory and move ahead and, and wait for it to be proven false. So what I'm suggesting is that, that, you know, since the Puranas have shown to be correct on this, on this data point, which are very, very, you know, special data points uh, and, you know, very novel testable predictions, just as in the case of 1919 experiment uh, for Einstein's theory of relativity. Therefore, we should take it for granted that this hypothesis that the Puranic attendance source of knowledge should be accepted and we should go ahead and try the Puranic method. And of course, the final verification of this point regarding does God exist has to be subjective. And there is no way we can provide ever an empirical method, empirical proof for God exists. It, it is it's a subjective, uh, you know, experience which one has to have. So, but what I'm uh, asking people or the the viewers or yourself is to try it, not wait for you know the same in the case of germ theory. People waited 20 years to use the washing the hand recommendation by Samuel Weiss, and because of that, so many people lost their lives. Now we have very short lives, so we have to take a decision. What do we want to do in our life? We want to wait for science to discover God, or we want to go ahead and try the experiment? Gotcha. I, I guess. Well, all, all I was going to say is like I just don't see what the symmetry breaker is. I don't. I don't know if Jack caught it, but this is where I'm at. Okay, we have this three premise argument. If the Puranas are accurate, they claim God exists. God exists. They're accurate. They claim God exists. Therefore, God exists. We push on the first premise and we ask why should we accept this claim? that if the Puranas make this claim uh, that, uh, or that if the Puranas are generally accurate and they claim God exists, that God exists. And it's, it's seems 
I, I'm still just not clear when we when we say there's two hypotheses here, right? Like there's one that says the Puranas are just right about you know everything, the claims they've made that have been tested and those that haven't, and um, a second hypothesis that says they're correct about the claims that have been tested, but you know we don't know the truth value. We don't know if they're correct about the others that haven't. They they are incorrect or partially correct or something like that. Um, why, what breaks the symmetry such that we ought favor one of those so that we're not dealing with underdetermination? And the three things that I've heard that I've caught were um, the, uh, the ones that aren't empirically testable can be confirmed subjectively from Arjuna, which we didn't even really talk about. We could talk about that, probably don't have time. Um, I heard mention of how long the hypothesis has um, existed without uh, being rejected, which I, I don't think, I, I don't actually see how, I don't see how they've existed for differential amounts of time. So that doesn't seem like a symmetry breaker. It seems like if it's equally true of both, it's not a, it's not a symmetry breaker. So it's a category error to propose it as one. And then the third was um, about ad hocness. And I don't know if we really got anywhere with that, but I, I would just, what I would like is if you could just be like perfectly clear like without like elaborating over like multiple paragraphs, which I'm not saying to be rude. I'm saying it for my own sake. So I can understand if you could just be perfectly clear, what is the symmetry breaker here? As I said earlier that in physics or in, in, in modern science, there are whenever a theory is proposed, or at least in the case of modern physics, there are, th there are parts of theories which can't be tested. There are parts of theories which can be tested, which are falsifiable. The Puranas have parts of it which are falsifiable and they have proven to be correct. Therefore, I am arguing that they should be accepted as genuine source of knowledge. I don't see how that's a symmetry breaker. Well, I have an explanation for why they should all be correct. Do you have an explanation for why some of the parts are correct and other parts are incorrect? That's just not answering the question. I'm asking you a question. Did you answer my question? No, of course not. Yeah. I'm asking you a question. Why, why would I let well, it myself be derailed like well, that? I don't think, like, I don't like, think, like uh, just of, to be clear, like I don't, it's not, it's not clear. I, I was just going to say, Siddharth, I don't think you've answered accurate, like, well, the question of what the symmetry breaker is, right? So if, if I put pressure on that and you respond by trying to grill me about my view, that's beside the point of, uh, as to whether you can no, but, justify but, on but, your, as, no. uh, sorry, that's, that's beside the point as to whether you on your view can justify that there's an asymmetry there to stop underdetermination, right? That's your challenge. Asking me a question is beside the point. I just well, want to know the what one, the answer the is supposed to be. You're the one who's proposing second hypotheses. I'm saying, can you explain your second hypothesis? hypothesis? I'm, I'm saying that my hypothesis, which is the first one, which is all the, the uh, everything stated in the Puranas is correct, is something which is based on ancient texts, which can be checked, which can be, which can be studied, which can be read. Where is the explanation for your second hypothesis. You're saying that there are parts of it which are correct, which we have just discovered, and the rest of it is incorrect. But where is the explanation for it? Why would those parts be incorrect? Maybe I'm not understanding. Jack, are you appreciating what the symmetry breaker is here, or are you also just not understanding so, what it's supposed to be? It sounds like the idea is something like, um, you've got these two different ideas, right? One is that the Puranas are uh, accurate about including things we haven't been able to test. The other is that um, it's not necessarily accurate about the things we haven't been able to test, right? And he's saying, well, if we, 
it, we have evidence um, for the hypothesis that um, the Puranas were written by people who were in contact with a design, divine source. And that's an explanation for how they could have this knowledge, right? Um, uh, um, in the first place, right? And the alternative hypothesis makes no commitment to anything of that kind. It just has this glaring, unexplained set of facts, right? Which is how is it that the authors of these texts um, were able to to um, to be in possession of that knowledge, right? Um, and so I think I, it sounds like Siddhartha is trying to say that because you have an explanation for how it is that they could be right about some of the things, whereas in the alternative case, you have no explanation for how they could be right about some of the things. We should prefer the view, we should prefer the first, because at least you have an explanation, right? Whereas in the other case, there's no explanation being offered at all. It's just taken as unexplained, well, right? Well, they're not equal, are they? Uh, well, see, I don't really see that as being um, a good explanation, just saying God told them, right? I don't take that to be a good explanation, which is sort of the same objection I would make in the case of the fine-tuning data, right? Is it's very easy to say, oh, for any unexplained thing, to say, oh, it has a divine explanation, right? Um, it seems to me you're going to need something a lot more than just sort of the fact that we don't have an explanation, we don't have a naturalist explanation, right, for something um, to there then infer to a hypothesis to, you know, an omniscient being that has the capacity to reveal things, right, to explain that fact, right? For the, me to the, think that that's better than no, uh, any possible naturalistic explanation, even one that I don't have, right? You're going to need something much more than that. Right. It's kind of like this, right? Like, here's a way to think about it. Like, let's say we have cheese, right? Um, well, we don't, you know, we might not know why it is that we live in a universe that uh, is, has the capacity for there to be cheese, right? There are types of universes that could have existed where there wasn't a possibility of there being cheese, right? It would have been inconsistent with the physical laws for cheese to ever emerge. In it. So we can posit a God that has the capacity, the desire, right, to produce a universe that in which cheese would eventually emerge, right? Uh, and so if I don't have an explanation for how cheese emerged, right, that is something predicted by the hypothesis, right? But it doesn't seem to me to be a good explanation. No, but we're not talking about not having an explanation for something people happen to find tasty. We're talking about not having an explanation for something that is mathematically impossible otherwise. One in 10 to the 186 is a really big improbability. So I can't see how you're making the, dis the discrimination between the two hypotheses any other way than by having an a priori metaphysical bias against anything that's not naturalism. I hate to do this, well, guys, but just because it's, of your it's worth it's, it's, sorry, it's, it's worth pointing out, Jack. 
Jack isn't a naturalist. <laughs> We're going to jump but, into the yeah. Q&A. I hate to do this, guys. But just because we, we have gone for a while, and I know some people have been waiting for their question to get asked for a while. So forgive me, guys, for doing that. But want to remind you folks that our guests are linked in the description. So if you want to hear more, you certainly can by going to their links in the description. And hey, I'm open to having these guys on again. It would be a blast, in fact. So we'd love to have them back on. And so thanks for your, your patience uh, to our speakers as we, we try to jump into everybody's questions. So thanks, everybody, for your questions. This one coming in from Sebastian says, Great win for Jack. And to ask yourself, please ask them what they think about Nick Bostrom's simulation argument really interested in their opinion I don't really remember the argument that well I know he argues it's more likely we're in a simulation I don't have anything interesting to say about it though sorry no problem and thanks for your question I didn't give you a chance Jack sorry about that do you have thoughts Jack well I I mean I it's I think the argument is very interesting although I haven't really ever tried to really engage with it i i think there might be an issue you know i subscribe to pragmatist epistemology there so i think there might be an issue with the coherence of the simulation hypothesis on a pragmatist epistemology but i can't really say much more than that um you know without looking into it more Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Soldier of Science says, ask yourself, I would like to donate five USD to get you to consider changing your label. Isn't everyone an agnostic? Um, changing my label. Oh, to atheist? Well, it's, I, I mean, I take atheist to mean someone who denies that God exists. So like they affirm the proposition. It's not the case that God exists. And that's actually not my view. So it would be a wrong label. But if you mean atheist is in like somebody who lacks belief, if that's the definition you're using, that's that's fine. I just I just don't want to confuse people. So I think agnostic is is unambiguous, regardless of which construal of atheist you take. You know what I'm saying when I say agnostic. Juicy. So you're is it fair to say you're in the Steve McRae camp? That's a fun topic we have once in a while. Or is it well, no, I think I think Steve goes a bit further. I think Steve makes prescriptive statements about what definition we ought to use. And if I'm wrong, he can correct me on that. But I, I don't go that far. Like, I think both definitions are coherent. Maybe you could raise some some practical issues with one. Like, I think Steve tries to say you're going to count like people who believe in God, but do it for irrational reasons. I, I forget his critique, but no, I'm not, I'm not committed to that strong a position. I just know that if I say agnostic, it doesn't matter which version of atheism you have in your head, you'll know what I'm saying. But if I say atheist, people who have a given version will get the wrong impression and think I'm making a claim that's too strong. So I just go for the term that's most likely to accurately convey what I believe. Gotcha. And everyone needs a smile. Thank you for your question. Said question for Siddharth and Arjuna slash theology unleashed. If it could be shown that the dates in the Puranas don't match modern science, would you assume the Puranas are incorrect or modern science? Well, if it can be shown that they are not vindicated or not uh, supported by modern science, then given that depends which epistemology you follow. If you follow the epistemology of empiricism, then yes, Puran is an incorrect source of knowledge. However, if you follow the other epistemology, which is that I just accept everything which is stated in the Puran to be correct, then from that perspective, Puran st will still stay, you know, 
correct for them. So it depends, you know, what what kind of model do you follow? I think gotcha. they're asking you what which you follow though. Because your answer was a conditional. You said, well, if you have this view, you'd say this. If you had that view, you'd say that. But they want to know what you'd say. Well, I would say that uh, uh, the, the science I have, what I found, you know, you know, that it, it goes through sometimes cycles. But from what we have found right now is that the Puranas have been, you know, thoroughly vindicated by modern science. So, you know, I feel that if for some facts Puranic data is not corroborated by modern science, I feel modern science will eventually come to agree. What is said in the Puranas, mm, but say it were just shown to be widely inaccurate, right? That's kind of what the question's getting at. Like, say it just turned yes. out that the scientific predictions are just bunk. Like, just for the sake of argument, if that were the case, would you abandon the Puranas or science? Not, I'll give you a chance to respond, not, and then we gotta go to the next one. <laughs> I was well, answer. Not, nece- not necessarily because they have been shown to be correct in so many in so many different ways, uh, like these three three data points and many of the subjective experiences. I'm pretty confident that they will come out to be true. Just like in the case of the age of the universe, if you had asked a question 100 years ago, the opinion among the scientists was that the universe is eternal at that time. And, you know, and, or sometime later, the opinion was that the universe was only like a couple of billion years old. That number, those numbers were pretty Arjuna, off. I know you would respond too. Yeah. So I, I numbers, have those, more than, sorry, more than just, just this. Epist- okay. So those, those numbers are, you know, pretty off than what we have current understanding of modern science. So, like that in future if there is a modern scientific claim which is very much off from the puranas i would assume that in future it will come to align itself with the puranas go ahead Arjun. so it would take more than just the cosmological uh data and the puranas to be off for me to discredit them because the the philosophy in them is so rich and there's so much philosophical support for it and then experiential support too you know from, by following the practice I get the results which are promised by following those practices to the degree that I follow them to the proper standards. So, you know, if chanting Hare Krishna didn't, you know, have effects on my consciousness as they're described and the scientific information was found wrong and philosophically it didn't stack up, then I would reject it. But if only the cosmological details failed, then I would just say, oh, maybe it's not describing the world the way we perceive it. Maybe it's uh, a metaphor, or maybe it's describing it from a different angle of vision than what we have access to through our senses. Jumping into the next one, Dharma Defender, thanks for your question, said, to the atheist crowd, do universals exist? (laughs) If so, where do they exist? If not, is that universally true that there are no universals? Thanks. I'm sure Jack would love a question like that. Not really. I mean, I don't. I, <laughs> Isn't I don't that like really, a Darth question? I guess it is. Yeah. I mean, I don't really take. I don't. I'm not really sure that the debate between nominalists and realists about universals is actually a substantive debate. So I, I really don't, don't have. I, I'm not only do I not take a position on whether universals exist or not. I'm not just even clear on whether it's a substantive question, I guess is what I would say. Gotcha. And Juicy, Lewis Barnett, thanks for your question, said, Jack, have you missed in-person events because of COVID? Uh, well, the, there have been no events. <laughs> they stopped all the events. There's no, you know, there's no performing arts. There's no lectures. There's no... Um, uh classes well i mean the classes are all online right so there's nothing in person that's actually happening that i could be attending so so i haven't missed anything 
Gotcha. And Piran Salas, thanks to your, for your question, said, Siddharth and Ar- Arjuna, do the Piranhas sound better on vinyl? I don't get it. <laughs> he's, like, it's, he's making fun of the name. He's saying it sounds like a band. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm slow, you guys. But they said also, Farron also said, thanks, debaters, and uh, to the show. So thanks for your kind words, Farron, uh, on behalf of all of us. We appreciate you. And then Brendan Langle. Stoked <laughs> to see you, dearest friend. He says, if we grant that the Piranhas are a reliable source, what exactly does that say regarding gods or a god? Miracles aren't evidence of anything in particular except power. Well, you mean you have an explanatory framework that fits with miracles, miracles, therefore they count as evidence for that framework. You'd need an alternative hypothesis which explain them. Gotcha. And by the way, Isaac AKA ask yourself, I have been seeing in the chat, people are saying we want to see Darth versus Jack. I have seen that in the chat a lot tonight. I told you. I told <laughs> and you. So we have to well let you know, folks. I, I already said it to Converse when he was here. I said, Converse, people are calling for it. So we'll see if Converse is able to. Jack, are you good buddies with Darth? Not anymore, no. Oh. But he was offered uh he was offered three hundred dollars um to debate me. But uh Oh, let's I make it three fifty. I'll throw fifty in. It's three fifty now. Okay, I don't think he's going to accept. All right. Well, sorry to hear that. And thank you for your question, Chris Gammon. Good to see you. It says for Siddharth and Arjuna, if scientific methods improve and begin to show the universe is actually thirty billion years old, are your Puranas no longer accurate and reliable? Please consider this and give your best answer. Arjun, I think I already answered it. Arjun, anyone, do you want to repeat yourself? Oh, yeah. It's kind of like the same question we already had. So I would just assume that the Puranas were talking about it in a sense different from how science is talking about it. So they could be describing the world from a, a mode of vision which we don't have accessible through our five senses. And I would still accept the statements you know, given on the Puranas based on the other lines of evidence, personal experience, and philosophical support. Gotcha. And Brenton Lingle strikes again, says validity of text seems beside the point. Brahman can never be the object of its own knowledge, i.e. a knife cannot cut itself. Fire cannot burn itself. I don't know what's there. I'm not even Yeah, it's just a kind of a strange statement. Yeah. A third-party opinion. And Seferin, thank you for your super sticker support. Appreciate it. Ruxter has a question. Thank you very much. Ruxter says, I am still unclear what the symmetry breaker was to deal with the issue adjudicating the competing hypotheses. I might have missed it. Do you guys well, feel... I have, some, I have something to offer on that. Suppose you're eating a, a big piece of cheese. You bite into the first one, it tastes good. Now, you haven't tasted... You haven't eaten the other part of the cheese. Now there are there are two competing hypotheses. You know, there were of course before beginning you you good and you taste you tasted a small piece of it, it turned out to be good. Now there are two competing hypotheses. One is that the rest of it is poison, or the rest of it is also good. Now take your pick. Which one would you, would you choose? You are hungry. Would you wait for some mice to come and eat the rest of the cheese, practically all of it, before you can conclude that it is not poisonous? 
well, we are all hungry currently in the world. We don't have solution to problems like envy, greed, pollution, and Puranas have an answer. Let's either we can wait for science to prove each all the parts of it, or we can accept it and see changes in our life. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this right. So forgive me if I don't. But is it anti? Good luck, James. <laughs> Anit Kathira, let me know if I've pronounced it right, but or not. Thank you for your question. Said if we find the Infinity Gauntlet, should we believe the entirety of the Marvel Universe? If an empirical claim of your faith was shown false, what would prevent you from claiming it was only metaphorical? Well, I mean, well, if, if we, we, we give evidence for it, and if that evidence fails, then we just stop using that piece of evidence. But if we have other evidence, like I said, you know, my ex personal experience of the practice would have to fail, and I would have to see that the philosophy doesn't stack up. Gotcha. As, far, as far as the infinity gauntlet goes, you know, if we did find that and it, there was some ways in which, you know, it was improbable to one in 10 to the 186, like the data we have in the Puranas is, then I'd say that's pretty impressive evidence for the Marvel comic world existing. Gotcha. And thank you very much. This question coming in from Brenton Lango says, what <laughs> is the Puranic or Puranic method? The Puranic method is uh, chanting names of God in your language daily for a you know, good amount of time. Gotcha. Thank you very much. And Labzor, thank you as well. Says for Jack, what is that? What is it that is fundamentally absolute and non-dependent <laughs> from which all your knowledge claims derive? Get wrecked, Jack. This is a verse from Bhagavad Purana, which says that the absolute truth has three features. Uh, Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. Brahman is the all-pervading you know, energy of God. Then the form of God, which is in the heart. And then there's a supreme personality of Godhead. So these are three different levels of absolute truth. And the philosophy is very deep. You're welcome to study Bhagavad Purana, you can find it on vedabase.com if you want to know more about absolute truth. You got it. And Jack, any thoughts on that question? Well, I don't think that they're necessary concrete facts. So I don't think there could be uh, some kind of causal dependency um, and probably not some kind of constitutive dependency either now there might be like logical dependency um so there might be like um fundamental um uh logical truths you know like things like laws of logic but um presumably there's just going to be some brute contingent facts i don't see any getting away from that so i think that the question is actually loaded um it presupposes that I think the question presupposes that there's no brute contingency, and I just take that view to be self-defeating. Gotcha. Thank you very much. And thanks, Sheepwork, for your question. Asked, was Krishna vegan? And if not, is that hypocritical? Krishna is uh, lacto-vegetarian, so he, he, would, he takes dairy as well as vegetables and 
the cows are cared for like mothers. So in, in Vedic culture, there's seven mothers. Cow is one mother because you take the cow's milk and therefore the cow is sacred and needs to be protected. So the compassion is a, a, a critical element. And because the cow is giving milk, it's treated with the, the greatest care. Gotcha. Thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Brenton Langle. Uh, let's see. We had to change in the screens there. Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, two of me for a second. But Brenton, stoked to have your question for Arjuna. Brenton says, you tried chanting Nam Myoho Rengi Kayo? I think maybe he's asking to chant something nonsense and see if it gives the same result. Uh, I, I definitely haven't ch tried chanting that, but yeah, there, there's certain gods whose name I would be worried about, like chanting that's, in public. That's a Tibetan. That's a Tibetan Buddhist chant. Nam Myoho. Oh, okay, right, right. So it's possible that chant gives a similar result. Our religion sees things in quite an inclusive way, so there can be names of God and other religions that give similar results when chanted. Uh, I'm I'm totally satisfied with the results I get from chanting Hare Krishna, and if Nam Myoho Renge Kyo is our names of God. Even if they're not, I'm sure the Sanskrit meaning is something uplifting. Or Sanskrit, it might be another language. I can't remember what language the Buddhists use. I think it, I think that's a Tibetan chant. Tibetan, Tanami, yeah, I think so. New Land Buddhism is theistic, by the way, and it's very similar in its teachings to the Bhakti Yoga in our tradition. You got it. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Brenton. And next question. Just kidding. We love Brenton. Uh, this is, thank you very much for letting me know regarding your name. Auntie Kitera, thank you very much for your question. Said, what's the difference between how you would justify discrepancies between Vedas and science and how young earth creationists would justify discrepancies between their view and geology or science well we're not in the position that young earth creationists are in because we don't have a divide between what's taught in the puranas and what science has discovered if we were in that situation and we were you know acting in a similar way then it would be a fair comparison but given that we have the science on our side as we're in a different situation uh, just to be sure, because I, I might not have read it that well. I think they're saying, like, uh, theoretically, you know, like, um, they said, how would you justify discrepancies? I think they're saying, like, if there were discrepancies. Uh, I haven't paid much attention to young earth creationists and how they argue. I, I do have to say I've never been impressed. You know, dinosaur bones were planted by the devil to, they're to, asking to trick how you. you. If there was a theoretical discrepancy, how you no. would address it. Between well, just the discrepancy wouldn't... between your view and science. He seemed to answer that clearly, though. He just said the science isn't all there is to Like, tell me if I'm wrong, but you just said, like, if ultimately it turns out the science is wrong, then, yeah, you'll you'll grant that, but you still have independent reasons to accept Krishna. Wasn't that the view? Like, subjective yeah, experience I mean, and stuff? Okay, depending gotcha. on the strengths of the science, you know, if the you know if our scripture said the Earth was 5,000 years old, I'm not sure I'd, I'd accept that because... You know, just basic things about cause and effect tell us that things are older than 5,000 years. So supposing our scriptures said the earth was 5,000 years old, I'd just say, I'd just interpret it metaphorically or say it must be saying something else. I don't know what it's saying. And I'll just focus on the bits I can confirm through my experience and through philosophy. Gotcha. Thank you very much. And then pardon my missing uh, that earlier. Anton Pai, thanks for your question, said, how is Hinduism 
caste system different from apartheid? The Indian caste system that goes on today is a, a degradation, and it is despicable. It's a degradation of an older system which is actually based on quality. So it's basically a way of structuring society where people who have certain qualities, it's not by birth. You know, you could be born in any kind of uh, varna, but if you have the qualities of a higher caste, of a higher varna, then you're you're meant to be allowed to, you know, live as that varna and work as that varna. And the whole point is, you know, if you have somebody who has the qualities of a suja running the kingdom, then they just pocket all the money and, oh, wait, hang on, <laughs> look at modern society. Gotcha. And thank you very much for your question. Brian Stevens says, what is one specific truth that Krishna has helped them find that can only be found through Krishna? Sorry, can you say it one more time? They had asked, what is one specific truth that Krishna has helped them find that can only be found through Krishna? Um well, the, the, the impressive thing that I'd say can only be done, given the theology being true, is that the transformation of characters. So, you know, Prabhupada came and he was asked, what's your mystical ability? And he said, my mystical ability is that, you know, I take all these degraded people and I turn them into saintly people. So, you know, there's like all sorts of psychology dedicated to how to transform people. But actually it's found like, you know, the AA 12-step program, it's, it's intrinsically theistic and that's the most successful program at transforming people into not being alcoholics. So similarly in the Hare Krishna movement, there's, there's a big track record and impressive stories of people's lives being turned around. And my life has definitely been uplifted by the practice. And I don't think you could just do that with wishful thinking. Wishful thinking doesn't make people give up being a drug addict. Gotcha. Richard Gray, thanks for your question, said, does the historical evidence for Jesus and his claims of being the son of God disprove Hinduism? I would think that all of you would say no. Or, well, uh, well, maybe they're uh, saying if you granted that those arguments for Jesus were sound, were strong. That, they're saying if Jesus is re reincarnated and that proves Christianity, does that disprove Krishna consciousness? Uh, I, I think they're maybe saying like if you granted the minimal facts argument for the resurrection that had come up earlier in the debate, let's say, I think they're saying like would that disprove Hinduism? No, it wouldn't because uh, the version of Hinduism that we follow called Vaishnavism or Chaitanya Vaishnavism is very inclusivist. So God is all loving. It's said that he descends wherever and wherever there's a decline in religious practices and he comes to, you know, re reinvigorate the religious teachings. So the idea that he came or sent someone, you know, whether you want to accept Jesus as God or, or as sent by God, uh, either one is fine by us. Um He's, it's consistent with that thing of God expressing his compassion and giving people all over the world opportunities to be uplifted in God consciousness. Gotcha. And folks, so sorry. Just if you, uh, let's see, we have a shortage of questions for Isaac and Jack. So thanks for your patience, guys. Uh, we <laughs> have you. many for uh, Siddharth and Arjuna. So we'll ask just two more and then uh, we, we've got to wrap up. But we do appreciate your questions. Big thang Bruce Wayne said for... It must be that they're asking uh, Arjuna and Siddharth. They say, are claims sufficient evidence for other gods? I don't understand the question. I... Oh, I, no, it's, are claims evidence? You know, if I claim the great pumpkin exists, is that evidence that the great pumpkin exists? Maybe that's the question. I think uh, that that's roughly it, yeah. 
Well, I mean, my my problem with that type of reasoning is, you know, let's define the the great pumpkin. You know, it has all the qualities God has, only it's a pumpkin instead of Krishna. Well, then we're not arguing over whether God exists. We're just arguing details about God. So to say, oh, is that evidence of my God versus your God is kind of philosophically uh, inaccurate when really we're just, you know, we're, there's a motor vehicle. Is it a Ford or is it a Hyundai? That's kind of the debate. It's not, you know, which motor vehicle, you know, is there a motor vehicle? Is there this one? Oh, I guess I, that example doesn't quite work there. But with, you know, with God, we're talking about one thing, you know, like the podium creator argument, you know, the guy who created the, po the podium, is he Krishna or is he a pumpkin? That's kind of the debate. So we've, we've already accepted that God exists at that point. There's philosophical arguments that get you to a single divinity. And yeah, I gotcha. think there's, there's philosophical arguments for Krishna because God is the greatest being imaginable and Krishna fits that definition better than a pumpkin. You got it. And thank you very much. Last question. Appreciate it. Platium. Thanks so much for helping us out in the discord, not helping Platium and Larry let's do everything. And so I want to say huge thank you to people like Platium, Larry let's and others who have helped run the modern day debate discord. And, uh, and like I said, fully have run it. So ask, could you ask what Purana translates to? I think they're asking if I can ask that. So in other words, what does Purana translate to? Ancient history. You got it. So thank you very much, gentlemen. I sincerely appreciate it. I know that, as, uh, you know, we haven't gotten as deep as we, I think that all of us would have liked to have and apologize for that. But we, we do really want to say thank you guys. You guys, honestly, you're the lifeblood of the channel. You make it fun. And so sincerely, Isaac, Jack, Siddharth, and Arjuna. It's been a true pleasure to have you guys on. Thanks, James. Cool. Thank you. And thanks, guys, for coming. I liked uh, this discussion. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I wish, I wish we could go more deeper. It was going becoming <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry we, we weren't really able to do justice to evaluating the, the arguments you guys were trying to make. So, I, you know, that's probably our failure. I, no, I mean, we can I always follow up. You can always you can always come by the server if you want to talk more. We can we can make that happen. That's yeah yeah. yeah. Send, send me some links. We could we could do another one on my channel too. Yeah, Absolutely. Sure. We're a re relatively shorter format, and so that makes it harder on you guys. And so we appreciate you guys, and want to let you know in the audience, all of our guests are linked in the description. If Jack has a link in the future, I'll add that as well. And so you can hear plenty more or replay more, listen plenty more from our guests. They are in the description, whether you're listening via YouTube or via the podcast. And so one last thank you to our guests and thank you everybody for all of your questions and just hanging out here. The more the merrier. And we, like we said, hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you come from. So thanks again to our guests. And I will be back in just a moment with a quick post-credit scene about upcoming debates, everybody. So stick around for that. Thanks, everybody, and be back in just a moment. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.